Hey, good to see you guys this weekend. So glad you're joining us. I'm Dan, I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, love the chance to meet you. Uh, a lot of you I know, and I'm glad we can join you this way. Uh, some of you I know I've talked to, you're thinking about coming back for Easter. And so we look forward to seeing you uh, in person services for Easter, uh, eight o'clock traditional service, uh, 9.30, and 11 o'clock contemporary service, 4 o'clock 5.30 contemporary service, and so look forward to seeing many of you. Uh, I've been a pastor here at the Norton Campus for almost 14 years, uh, and I've been a pastor for almost 30 years, but I haven't always been a pastor, you know? Uh, before I was a pastor, I did several different jobs. One of the jobs I had, I was a truck crew supervisor, or actually I was the assistant supervisor, right? I worked the night shift. Third shift. Let me hear for all the third shifters out there, right? Uh, I would unload trucks in the middle of the night, and then we'd stock shelves and things like that. And my job was to get there early. Before the rest of the crew got there, meet the truck driver and kind of help him get backed into the dock, and then I would unload the truck. And I built relationships with these guys, but I was always mesmerized and enjoyed watching them back their truck into that little space where the dock was. It's always cool, man. I'm like, man, these guys, that's amazing that they can do that. But I didn't realize how amazing it was till a couple years after I did that job. After that job, a few years later, I was working with a landscaper. And we would go different places, landscape, right, mulch, mow, all that kind of stuff. So he had a big truck, and they had this big trailer that he carried all of his equipment on. I remember one day, he called me, and he said, Dan, I'm sick. I can't go. I need you to come get my truck, get the trailer. I need you to take all of our stuff, and I need you to do these jobs. And when you get to the first place, you're going to have to back in to their driveway. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> if you've ever done it, you know where I'm going with this, right? So I did. I'm like, how hard can that be? I watch truck drivers do it all the time in my other job, right? I got in his truck. I went to the place. And I got there, and I thought, i got to back this thing in. I'm going to tell you something. It was a mess right? It felt like no matter how hard I tried to back that thing down that driveway, I always ended up cockeyed, right? You ever done that? <laughs> you ever tried that? I mean, it is a futile feeling, man. Uh, guys, I was so embarrassed. Traffic is backed up. People are watching me. And every time I did, listen close, what felt intuitive to me, when I would turn the wheel the way that it felt natural to me, it always made the trailer go the wrong way. I remember a guy came, eventually like, he got tired of watching me try to back this thing down the driveway. And he says, son, <laughs> he said, turn the wheel this way. And all of his instruction, listen close, was the very opposite of what my intuition was. <laughs> My intuition said I should turn the wheel this way. And he said, nope, if you want to back the trailer in, you're going to have to turn the wheel that way. And his instruction went counter to my intuition. And yet when I listened to his instruction, I was able to get the trailer down that driveway. I was so glad. And there was freedom, <laughs> right? I was out of the road. You see, why, why do I say that? Well, I say that because for some of you, that's exactly what your life feels like right now. 
You're trying to figure out how to get your life backed into a place where you can experience some freedom. And that's why we're talking about what we're talking about here at Grace Church. We're talking about something Jesus talked about more than anything else. And that's the kingdom of heaven. And this kingdom of heaven is, is, we simply have said this, it's not a place on a map. You can't find it on a map. It's just where Jesus rules and reigns. But here's what we've said. That Jesus, the king, when he came, he came with a message that sometimes is counterintuitive. He came to an upside down world and he turned the map right side up. He came and he gave instruction that went counter to our intuition and what feels natural. And as he came, this kingdom of heaven message saturated everything he talked about and taught. It didn't just do that, but it, it was something that he demonstrated with his life. Now, now, here's what we said a couple weeks ago. It's very sobering. This idea of the kingdom of heaven, it's what he talked about. It seems important. He talked about it more than anything else. But here's what a guy named Paul says. We said this a couple weeks ago. He says, the kingdom of God or heaven is not a matter of talk, but of power. He said, listen, it's not enough to be able to explain it or talk about it. But he said, I want you to experience it. Like the kingdom of heaven is a power to be experienced. It's not just a topic to be talked about. And so here's what we've been saying the last couple of weeks, that this kingdom of heaven, right? If we're gonna experience it, we're gonna have to realize that the power of this kingdom comes more like a seed than a bulldozer. We talked about it two weeks ago. Last week, Pastor Aiden did a great job leading us through this conversation. If we're gonna experience the power of this kingdom, we're gonna have to embrace there's a cost. There's a cost to it. Deny self, take up your cross. Here's what I wanna do for, for a few minutes this weekend. To experience the power of this kingdom, we're gonna to have to run into the freedom of it and running into the freedom of it is gonna be something that's gonna be counterintuitive. And Jesus in teaching us this is gonna teach us to turn the steering wheel the other way. Here's what I mean. We as a country and as a people, we're obsessed with freedom, right? Land of the free, home of the brave, right? Don't mess with my freedom. It's a free country. All those statements, right? We love our freedom. Yet the truth is sometimes our freedom to pursue what we think will ultimately bring us ultimate freedom is the very thing that leads us into bondage. I'll say that again. Sometimes our freedom, I'm free, our freedom to pursue the things that we think will bring us ultimate freedom, sometimes it's that freedom that leads us right into bondage. I was reading a story about these farmers in India. Maybe you've heard of this before, right? Their crops were being totally ravaged by runaway monkeys, right? We don't have that problem here, right? We got squirrels and raccoons. We ain't got monkeys, right? Uh, but they weren't sure how to deal with it. And, and these farmers were compatible. They didn't want to shoot the monkeys, like, how do we deal with this thing? And, and, and then one farmer in particular, he devised a plan. It was incredible to read about it. Uh, the, the plan was this. They would take coconuts, tie them to a tree. And in those coconuts, they'd make a, a hole that was small and they'd put a banana. <laughs> and, and what would happen, it was interesting to me, what would happen is that that monkey would come, smell the banana tie, that was in the coconut tied to the tree. And they would so want that banana. That banana is what they would focus on. They'd reach in that coconut, grab a hold of that banana, tied to that tree that's attached to that coconut, right? And when they grabbed a hold of it, they so wanted it 
that they, when they grabbed it, they couldn't get their hand out of the coconut. And what the farmers found was this, is they would not let go of the banana to get free from the coconut, which was tied to the tree. They were in bondage because of what they wouldn't let go of. You see, here, here's what I think. When it comes to our freedom and understanding freedom in the kingdom, sometimes we never experience the power of the kingdom and the freedom of the kingdom because of what it is that we have a hard time letting go of. The disciples are no different than you and I. They're trying to get their head around this whole idea of the kingdom. And they ask a lot of questions. By the way, questions are good. That's a different sermon. Questions are good. right? And the disciples had a lot of them. Just They're trying to get their head around. Jesus, it feels counterintuitive, upside down. This whole kingdom thing's disorienting. And today, just for a few minutes, I want to look at three of those questions that might help us understand the power of his kingdom. And I think it's going to rock some of our world because he asked us to steer in a way that is counterintuitive. Uh, the first one is Matthew 18. If you have a Bible, get there. Uh, get your phone there. Matthew 18, 1. Disciples came to him, his followers, and they said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's their question. They want to know, all right, this whole kingdom thing, you're going to be the king. Jesus has been telling them he's going to die. They have a natural question. They want to know, who is the greatest? Who's the most important? Who's the most significant? Maybe even they're thinking because he said, you know, I'm going to die. Maybe they're thinking succession plan. <laughs> They might be thinking like, I wonder which one of us going to, like, that, that's kind of big news today, right? I don't know, if you're, I don't want to create a controversy, but maybe you're watching the news, right? Uh, Prince Harry, uh, no longer part of the monarchy, right? Because all this succession stuff over there in Great Britain, maybe, it's, it's just interesting, right? It's in the news, right? And so he no longer has the privileges of the monarchy, right? And so he now lives in the United States. Well, they're asking this question, like, how do I have status, recognition, importance in the kingdom? How, here's, here's what they're asking, how do I know? How do I know I've arrived? It's a question you have, I know that. I, you have that question in some fashion. How do I know I've arrived? Uh, the question is, is, is a relevant question today as it was then. Here's why I know that, because in some way, we in our culture play this Darwinian game of who's the greatest, and, and how can we measure that? And it becomes this endless pursuit to find the pathway to significance and relevance and importance and greatness. And sometimes we become so preoccupied in our culture with greatness, right, that, that it leads to bondage. We're trained this way. Do you know that? Sure we are. How many of you, you can raise your head, I can see you through the lens here. How many of you, right, went to a high school where, where you were trained this way because at the end of your senior year in the yearbook, they took a vote. Yeah, they took a vote. And, and, and the vote was most likely to, right? Or best fill in the blank. And the things at the other end of that blank are what our culture would say is great. <laughs> happened in my high school. We didn't take a vote on who's the most likely to be bald, right? <laughs> I did that out of one, right? We didn't take a vote on who's most likely to be a failure in life. We took, we took a vote on like, I wonder who's the most likely to what? Succeed. Uh, who's the most likely to be president? Uh, we took a vote on who's most likely to make a million dollars. Who's most likely to be a celebrity? Who's most likely to 
win the Nobel Peace Prize. That's what we took a vote on. We, we want to predict greatness. Uh, we like to measure greatness. How many fans do you have? How many Facebook followers do you have, right? Uh, how much money are you making? How many degrees do you have? How many awards have you won? Uh, greatness is something we compete for. If you think about it, greatness is something that we compete for. Just think about this. This idea of greatness is competition. To increase my significance, sometimes I gotta decrease yours. To increase my greatness, sometimes I gotta reduce yours. That's the way it works, right? And, and then once I'm considered great, you know what the big preoccupation in life is? I gotta make sure I hold on to it. We're, we're preoccupied with greatness. We compare greatness. We, we call people the goat, the greatest of all time, but it's not enough to call them the goat, the greatest of all time. We gotta say, well, I wonder how they compare in their sport to people in other sports. It's not just enough to be the greatest football player. Are they the greatest athlete of all time? Here's the deal. The more we try to grab it and hold on to this idea of greatness, the more imprisoned we become to it. And the more we think we have it, the more imprisoned we are to holding on to it. <laughs> it's this vicious cycle that our, the disciples are in it too. They're curious about it. They're obsessed with it. In fact, if you go to Mark and read this same account, the book of Mark, right? Uh, here's what Mark tells us. Matthew, for some reason, leaves it out. Mark says they were arguing about it. <laughs> They were arguing about which of them was the greatest. That's interesting, right? Uh, why? Because they wanted to know how this whole thing of the kingdom worked in greatness. And Jesus says this, listen, you're, you're steering this way. You're thinking in an upside down world. You're, you're turning the steering wheel this way. And Jesus goes, you got to turn this way. And look what he says, verse two. He calls a little child to them and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. This is important to get this. He first says you can't enter the kingdom unless you become like a child. Basically this, we've talked about this before. Entry into the kingdom of heaven is not like earning a job at a job interview, but it's more like being born into a family. That's important. My kids don't earn being a part of my family. Right? They were born into my family. That's the way you become part of the kingdom of heaven. But verse four, he goes on, he says, therefore, whoever takes, this is key, underline this in your Bibles, the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. What's he saying? He's saying greatness in his kingdom is not achieved by pursuing our need to be great. Status rank, right, position. But what he's saying is greatness in his kingdom is being willing to let go of that pursuit. And it's taking the position of a child. You couldn't have get you couldn't have gotten lower on the totem pole than a child in their culture. Right? What he's saying, he's talking about the position of a child that greatness in the right side up kingdom of Jesus doesn't look anything like it does in our upside down world. So he's saying, in our upside down world, the pursuit of greatness is fueled by pride. It's fueled by pride and that pride wants to be served by others. What he's saying is this, in the right side up kingdom, greatness is taking the position that's low 
And it's humbling myself and being willing not to be served by others, but to serve others. That's why he says, whoever welcomes a child like this welcomes me. Whoever welcomes the lowest in our culture. Here's what's interesting. Uh, the disciples didn't get it just because he said it. <laughs> like, I'm not going to assume that we're going to get it just because we're preaching about it this weekend. Here's how I know that. Because if you flip your Bible over a few pages, just go ahead and do that to chapter 20, uh, here's what you find. These same disciples are gathered with Jesus two chapters later. And, and <laughs> two of them have their mom with them. That's a different sermon, right? But, but, but then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, and she kneels in front of him and asks a favor of him. And he says, what is it you want? She says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What's she saying? I'd like my, my boys to have a position of greatness. What she's saying is, I want the status that my boys can have being close to you. That's what she's saying. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can. Jesus said, well, you will indeed. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. <laughs> Verse 24 is always interesting to me, right? Verse 24, it says this. When the other ten heard about this, they were indignant. They're not holier than thou, guys. They're mad because they want to be the greatest. They want the same seats, right? Jesus gets them all together. He says, we've got to have this lesson again. He says, you know how it is in an upside-down world. The rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. That's what greatness is. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you in my kingdom. Instead, right, whoever wants to be, what, great among you must be your servant. It's interesting. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. What's the point? I'd write it down this way. Just get some notes and write it down. Just let this percolate. Jesus is saying this. You're going to experience the power of the kingdom, the freedom of the kingdom. He says, let go of your prideful need to be great so that you can experience the freedom of humble service. That's what he's saying. He says, the greatness in the kingdom of God is letting go of my, my prideful need to be recognized, important to have others serve me so that I can experience the freedom of humble service. Sounds counterintuitive. It's like, what? That's really not how our upside down world measures greatness. And yet, here's what Jesus wants you to know, and, and I want you to hear this sitting wherever you're watching this. If you get a hold of this, it'll revolutionize your marriage, your relationships. And all of a sudden, whatever it is you're trying to back down the driveway of your life, you, and, and it's not working, you listen to Jesus. It's counterintuitive. He says, turn the wheel the other way. It'll revolutionize your marriage. It begs an important question. I gotta show you this. Why would somebody do that? And Jesus gives us the answer. In the very last verse, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, because the Son of Man. Remember, the Son of Man, that's the King, that's Jesus. So let's, let's substitute King in there. Just as the King 
Some of you were with us in our Daniel series. Go back and listen. That son of man, they would have thought, oh, that son of man, that one who has the authority, that one who's going to rule, that one who's going to reign. That's what they would have thought. The son of man, the king, did not come to be served. What? Yeah, he's turning the steering wheel. But not just for you. That's how he did it. But to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, what he's saying is this. The reason is that the gospel and the story of Jesus is all about turning the steering wheel in a way that's right side up, counterintuitive to what our world says. The disciples got a chance to watch this play out as they watched the life of Jesus. And eventually it came to full fruition as he knelt before each of them and washed their feet. But it didn't stop there. He became the servant who went the whole way to the cross. He didn't grab position. He didn't grab importance. He went clear to the cross. Why? Because his entire life mission was to leverage his life to make great your needs and my needs. And that's why he died. <laughs> you see, it's not until you receive what he did for you that you'll be ready to release your prideful need to be great. <laughs> and then you'll have the power to experience the freedom of humble service. There's another question they ask, right? Maybe that's not, maybe that's not your struggle. That's okay. The next question that Jesus gets asked follows Matthew 18, some teaching Jesus does. Jesus uh, next talks to his disciples about, hey, what do you do when one of your brothers, somebody in the community, sins against you? He said, y'all are going to get in each other's way. Can I get an amen out there? you <laughs> get in each other's way, yeah? Yeah. And, and so Jesus, sometimes this gets overlooked, verses 15 to 20, he, he says, this is what you do. You go to them. And point it out. If they don't respond, acknowledge, repent, he says, then you take someone with you. Point it out. From, from the church, from the community. If they won't listen, respond, acknowledge, and repent, he says, then you bring the church or, or a group of people from the church. And if they won't respond, uh, respond and acknowledge and repent, he says, then you treat them like a tax collector pagan and that's not shunning them how did jesus treat tax collectors he loved them you treat him as somebody who maybe is not a follower of jesus that's what he's saying after he does this teaching though peter has an interesting question because like okay jesus i hear what we're supposed to do and people are gonna hurt me here's his question verse 21 it's okay jesus i hear you you know, I see Peter, I hear you, Jesus. But he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, but I want to know how many times <laughs> shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? That's a good question. That's a good question. It's a question I've been asked a gazillion times as a pastor. Ah, come on. It's a question I've asked myself a gazillion times. His question is my question. And, 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 and what he's saying is, how many times do I got to forgive? Or we could reword it this way. Jesus, when am I free from the obligation to forgive? That's what he's saying. 
And then he gives an answer. He suggests an answer. Some of you are wondering the same thing Peter is. He says, how about seven times, Jesus? And everybody around would have been like, whoa, Pete, you're going crazy here, right? Because Peter suggests an answer, and he goes well above the pale, right? And, and the rabbis would have taught, man, you got to forgive somebody three times. Three strikes, you're out, right? They were great baseball players. Three strikes, you're out. Peter's like, Jesus, I hear this teaching, and what about me, seven times? I'll take three times two plus one is what he's saying. Now, Peter is just simply saying, what's my obligation? How far do I got to go in this forgiveness thing? That might be your question. For Peter, it was a number. For you, it might not be a number. It's a situation. I understand I got to forgive these things, but you don't understand, Dan. I got this thing. Your question might be different than Peter's. It might not be how many times, but it might be like, I got this thing. Look at Jesus' answer to Peter. It's interesting to me. He says, Peter, I tell you not seven times. And then he takes that wheel and he goes, just like this. He says, I tell you 77 times. He's like, Peter, I know you think you're going to back that thing down the driveway, turning the wheel that way, and it even sounds really, really self-righteous. <laughs> but then Jesus goes, just like that. He says, you got to take that wheel and you got to yank it over here. And he says, now, now, now here's, what is Jesus doing? Is he picking some random number? Does he want us to count? I, I think what Jesus is saying, like if we're keeping track, we're probably missing the point, right? But I, listen, listen, listen. I think there might be something else going on here that maybe you've never seen. If you've read this, maybe you've never seen it in this passage before. Jesus says 77 times. Why does he say that? I think he might be using this number on purpose, guys, because there's another time that number is used in the Bible. I think the disciples would have been like, oh. In fact, uh, it might be the only other time it's used in the Bible. And I think when Jesus said this, I think they would have been like, oh, like he's almost using it as a juxtaposition against this other passage. You're saying, Dan, what's that other passage? Well, when God created this world, remember this, he created it right side up. Didn't take long, man turned it upside down. One of the first stories in the Bible is of this first family. They had two boys, Cain and Abel. And if you remember the story, you can check me on it. Cain, older brother, kills Abel because he's jealous and angry over his sacrifice. And God tells Cain, if you don't get this under control, this jealousy, this anger, sin is going to crouch at your door the rest of your life. If you read the story of Cain, he goes and he builds a city. Now, now this is interesting to me. And, and as goes the founder of the city, Cain, so went the city. Because one of the residents of that city, the city of Cain, his name was Lamech. And he was a songwriter or a poet, and he wrote a song, maybe a country song, I don't know. And it went like this. He said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Just think about these words. Let them sing in. I killed a young man for injuring me. And he said, if Cain is avenged seven times, then the way of Lamech is 77 times revenge. <laughs> I think Jesus is using this number intentionally saying that in this upside down world, we are more prone to embrace the philosophy of Lamech we live in an I'll make them pay world. 
You ever heard those commercials on TV? Attorneys come on there and say, hire me, I'll make them pay. And I get it, you know, and all that. But but honestly, like that's the that's what Lameca is saying. It's like, ah, you think Cain, I'll make them pay. And what Jesus is saying is this, is the way of the kingdom is to turn the steering wheel drastically the other way. If you're taking notes, I'd write it down this way. I think what Jesus is saying is this, let go of my need to make them pay, to experience the freedom, I'm gonna explain this, of costly, costly forgiveness. Jesus says, instead of revenge, the way of Lamech, 77 times, I instead want you the way of the king, to experience the freedom of costly forgiveness. My 30 years of preaching and teaching and I don't know of a topic that I talk on that causes more angst in people. Honestly, I don't know of one. And I think Jesus is teaching that there's freedom in costly forgiveness. Now, before we look at the rest of this, because I, I gotta show you something, because you're, some of you are already sweating, some of you are already, but you don't understand. Like, you're, you're like Peter, but you don't understand. And I get that. Before we go any further, might be good for us to just make some observations before we look at what he is saying. What is he obviously not saying when it comes to forgiveness? That forgiveness, this is, you write these things down, go ahead, is not ignoring it, is not forgetting it. He just taught that, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Go back and read it. He's saying, when somebody sins, it's not like you ignore it, you go. You talk to them. If they won't listen, you take somebody with them. He's obviously not teaching that, that forgiveness is condoning it, excusing it. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying when somebody sins, you go, address it. You look for repentance. He's not teaching this. Some of you need to hear what I'm saying. He's not saying forgiveness is tolerating or allowing further abuse. Some of you watching this right now are in abusive situations. And forgiveness is not tolerating it, allowing it. In fact, some of you need to get out of it right now. This is what he's teaching. Uh, because of verses 15 to 20, he's not teaching that, that forgiveness is always reconciliation. Doesn't mean things always go back to the way they were. And it's not even that forgiveness means there's no consequences. That's not what he's teaching. Matthew 18, 15 to 20, make that clear. But he is saying this, that there's freedom in costly forgiveness. What is it then? And why in the world would somebody steer this way? Verse 23, because of the kingdom of heaven. It's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He began the settlement in a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. This is the NIV that I'm reading from. I love the NIV. It's a great, I do not like that translation for this reason. The, the original says talents. All it means is this, a talent was worth 20 years of a day laborer's wages. 10,000 times 20 years worth of, the guy owes a lot of money, <laughs> trillions of dollars. Since he wasn't able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had be sold to repay the debt. He sold into debt service till it's paid off. In other words, the rest of his life. 
servant falls for his knees, says, be patient with me, king. He begged, I'll pay back everything, which he couldn't, he wouldn't, he can't, it's impossible. The servant's master took pity on him, compassion, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant then went out, here's what's interesting, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Uh, write in your Bibles if it, if it says that, denarii. He owed him a uh, hundred days wages. So it pales in comparison, but still significant. He grabbed him, sound familiar? He choked him and he says, pay back what you owe me. Fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Listen, this is the part that sounds familiar to me. Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. That sounds familiar. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man not sold into debt service so he could pay it back, but thrown into what? Prison. Does that guy have any prayer paying it back in prison? <laughs> None. Until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, I guess. They went and told the king, the master, everything had happened. Master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Just as, underline this in your eyes, just as I had on you. In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. I think that's a picture of the person who lives in perpetual unforgiveness. It's a torture chamber of bitterness and resentment. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your, circle this, heart. I think the first thing Jesus does in this little thing is he tells us what forgiveness is. The first thing forgiveness is, it's a willingness to cancel the debt. The king canceled the man's debt. If he canceled the man's debt, who is it that absorbed the cost? Come on, say it out loud. Who is it? The who? The king. The king. The king absorbed the cost, right? He's the one who had to pay it. Somebody has to absorb the hurt. Somebody has to absorb the payment. Somebody had to absorb the cost. The king did. Forgiveness is canceling the debt, right? That's what it means. But there's something key in this that Jesus teaches. He says, verse 35, unless you forgive your brother or sister, I told you to circle this from your what? Heart. When you think that as an American, 21st century, you think heart is what? emotions and feelings. You gotta read it the way they would have understood it. In the Bible, when you, when you read the Bible, circle every time it talks about heart, there's no word for brain necessarily. That for them, when they talked about the heart, it would have been the place where logic and reasoning came together with feeling. Here's what he's saying, this is worth writing down, there's no slide for it. That forgiveness is a choice first not a feeling. And it's a choice, here's what Jesus is teaching, to remember how much I've been forgiven. And then to extend that same, that's what he's saying, that's, that's what he's teaching. That's why we're gonna celebrate Good Friday, the bread and the cup, 
right? Here's what Jesus is teaching. He said, experiencing the power of his kingdom is to realize that Jesus is the king who owed nothing but paid everything in order to extend to us forgiveness that we will never, ever be able to out-forgive. That's what he's teaching. And that's the power of forgiveness. And, the, and that's the power of the kingdom. That's the power of experiencing the kingdom. I was thinking about this whole idea of forgiveness and a story kind of came to my mind. Um, it's of a gal, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but Rachel Den Hollander. Uh, she was one of the many gals that was abused by uh, Larry Nasser. Some of you read about this in the news and things like that. And on the day when they got to address the judge and also uh, Larry, she says something interesting, and I thought I'd just read her statement. She looked at the man who had violated her in all of these ways, Larry Nasser, and she said this to him. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And she looked at him, she had said, so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible that you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I choose to love this way as well. She said this, you spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you've done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity, horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen uh, presented in this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, you, Larry, she says, this has been hard to hear, have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak, you carry, uh, carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. That is what makes, listen, the gospel so sweet. She's saying this in the courtroom. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And she looked at him, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance, true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than the forgiveness from me. Then she said this, though I extend that to you as well. My friends, that is a woman who took the steering wheel and turned it counterintuitive. She turned it a different way. <laughs> In the courtroom. Here's what I know. Jesus says this, you want freedom in the kingdom? You want to experience the power of the kingdom? Steer that thing into humble service that sees others' needs as great, not your need to be great. Steer that thing into the power and the freedom of costly forgiveness. One more thing real quick. Matthew 19, can, can we do this real quick? Matthew 19, verse 16. 
Just then a man, and you read the other Gospels, he was probably a rich, young ruler, had wealth, youth power, all the things our culture would say. Man, he, he had it going on. He comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, circle that in your Bibles. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, when he asks this, you read that a certain way, particularly if you grew up in church. He's not saying, what do I got to do to get to heaven when I die? He's saying, what do I got to do to live the life that looks like God is in charge? Literally, what he's saying is, what do I got to do to experience the life that looks like God's in charge of the ages? Jesus says, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. And then Jesus says, I'm going to confuse you if you grow up in church. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. If you grow up in church, you're like, shouldn't he have said forgiveness, stuff like that? Jesus is going somewhere. The man says which ones. Jesus says, oh, don't murder, commit adultery, steal, false testimony, honor mom and dad. And then he says this. He went from the scale a couple weeks ago to the sheet music. And love your neighbors yourself. I think the man sincere. He says, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? I think he's sincere. Verse 21, Jesus answered. The book of Mark says this, that at this point Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's powerful to me. If you want to be perfect, literally you want to become mature, grow up, go from playing the scale to sheet music, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then Jesus says, come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth. And maybe we could add to that, and maybe that great wealth had him. Something has you today. And it might be what you have, or wish you had. That might be the thing that has you. Jesus is talking to a moral man. He's a good man. He's an upstanding man. He's a keep the commandments kind of man. And he's saying, listen, you want to grow up in this kingdom thing? Take the wheel and jerk it the other way. Turn it the other way. Yank it over here a way that's counterintuitive. Jesus said then to his disciples as the man walks away, sad. It's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because they have a lot of stuff, and a lot of stuff probably has them. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a car to go through the front door, or however you want to say that. When disciples heard this, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Guys, I, I want to be quick about this, just for the sake of time. But I think in some ways, this story represents 21st century American Christianity. And it's a dialogue that's relevant right now. This man, I told you to circle the word teacher because this man comes to Jesus, this is key, and he sees Jesus as a teacher simply who could show him what to do to get into the kingdom. Listen close. He sees Jesus, some of you see Jesus this way, as a teacher who will tell me what to do to get into the kingdom. And Jesus wanted the kingdom to get inside the man by recognizing that Jesus is not just a teacher, but he's the king. You're saying, Dan, how do you know that? Because the man missed the point. The only thing he 
heard in what Jesus said is all the things he had to let go of. And what he missed was the king of kings was inviting him to follow him. He missed the point. Here's the, the point. If you're taking notes, write it down this way. Jesus is saying, you want to experience the power of the freedom of the kingdom, let go of what has a hold of me to experience the freedom of complete surrender to Jesus, the king. The man wanted to know the one thing he had to do, and Jesus showed him the one person that he could follow. And the man walked away sad because in order to surrender to Jesus' invitation, he had to let go of what had a hold of him. And what had a hold of him was all these other things. He missed the point. The king was inviting him to follow him. And he says, I want you to go sell. This is not some universal command. You don't have to, in order to follow Jesus, go sell everything you have. He's looking at this man because he saw what had a hold of him. It might be different for you. Something has a hold of you. And Jesus doesn't chase this man. He doesn't argue with this man. He loved this man. And he loves you. And his invitation is for you. Peter says, well, Jesus, we've left everything. What will there be for us? He says, truly, I tell you, the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the yet to come. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake, this is key, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. What's the point? Jesus turns the wheel different than our intuition says. And here's what he says. If you want to experience eternal, abundant, abundant life, life where it's like God is in charge, he says, let God, let Jesus be in charge. And he says, get rid of anything that gets in the way of surrendering. Anything that gets in the way of surrendering, give it up, get rid of it. Guys, this is the great challenge of this passage. And then I wanna pray with you, we're done. This guy was the ultimate. He had the American dream. He had it all. Youth, power, wealth, it's not all, and morality. He kept the commandments. He was a good person and he missed the kingdom. That's sobering. In our culture, he would be the epitome of success wrapped in Christian virtues and values. And yet, when the king invited him to follow him, he went away sad. That's sobering to me. He missed the power of the kingdom because of what he wouldn't let go of. What is it that you won't let go of? You see, the kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk, but of power. In the freedom, experiencing the power of the freedom of the kingdom is listening to the king as you're trying to back this thing into your life, saying you need to turn the wheel different than you think. Quit pursuing your prideful need to be great. Take the position of humbly serving others. 
quit demanding that they pay. He said, instead, because you've received forgiveness, experience the freedom and the power of costly forgiveness that you extend to others. And then he says this, be willing to let go of whatever it is has hold of you, something has a hold of you, in order to follow the king in complete surrender. So God, that's the kingdom of heaven. And I pray that the power of the kingdom of heaven would explode on the scene of our lives. Because God, some of us are in the middle of the road of our life trying to back this thing down the driveway and it's not working and we're frustrated and we're creating a scene and it's a traffic jam. And I pray that you'd hear us to hear the sweet voice of Jesus saying, turn the wheel the other way. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.